Thanks a lot for being here. My name is Kevin Conover, and we're broadcasting down in Southern California. Uh, locally, we're on KPRZ, uh, 1210 AM. That's uh, down here in Southern California in San Diego uh, with Salem. And we're also on FM 106.1 in North County. And then, of course, we're all over social media, all over the different platforms. We're on uh, uh, iTunes and the podcast and everything else. And uh, we've had some fantastic shows recently. My name is Kevin Conover. Educateforlife.org is my website. And uh, it's got all kinds of apologetics uh, topics that you can look at and that you can um, use for homeschooling or for Bible study, for small groups, whatever you need, all there. And one of the topics I cover, which I love covering, is, of course, dinosaurs. People always ask, how do dinosaurs fit into the equation? Um, you know, I'm an apologetics teacher, and I start off here with my kids, teaching them. We, you know, we're covering, uh, we just finished Buddhism. We're, we're hopping into Islam now. And I have kids always saying, when are we going to cover dinosaurs? I want to know about dinosaurs. So <laughs> it's fantastic. My guest today is Brian Thomas. He received a master's in biotechnology in 1999. And he also has a PhD in paleobiochemistry. That's that's serious right there. That's that's like three different disciplines all, all wrapped into one. Um, from the University of Liverpool, um, he joined the Institute for Creation Research, ICR, as a science writer and editor all the way back in 2008. I've read tons of his articles and uh, used tons of his articles to share with other people. And he was appointed as a research associate in 2019, a research scientist in 2021. And he's the author of Dinosaurs and the Bible, among many other uh, books that he's co-authored, and his dissertation, Ancient and Fossil Bone Collagen Remnants. You can also get that in book form. ICR.org is the website if you want to um, check that out. But uh, it's all kinds of resources. Um, Brian, thank you so much for being on the program this evening. My pleasure, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, it's really interesting. I was looking at all your stuff and you've written so many different articles and, um, but it's very clear that there's a very heavy emphasis on dinosaurs. And I've got a whole lot of questions uh, to ask for you. And I'm, a lot of people are very curious about these subjects. It's always nice when you have somebody who really knows this information, but a lot of people don't know that you actually used to be an evolutionist. Mm. Yeah, that's How right. And I, I went from right. evolution to creation uh, because a friend challenged me and basically he kept he kept poking me. He was like, show me the proof of evolution. And I, I was like, the proof is that everyone believes it. He goes, that's not <laughs> scientific, you know? Yeah. I want the experiments, you know, or whatever. And so I, I just, he kept asking me, like he got annoying with it. And, uh, and so, yeah. So, so he, he said, I'll stop bothering you about this if you'll read a creation book. So, uh, so he made a deal with me. And so guess what book wow, that you was? got? You got sucked in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the book was called Scientific Creationism, you know, and it was uh, by the founder of the Institute for Creation Research, Dr. Henry Morris. And I read that book, you know, with a pen and pad in hand to refute it because I knew, I just knew it was a quack science book. Uh, and it turns out it was, it made more sense, cre the creation perspective, you know, made more sense of the real world. And the things, the features I see in the world from the cosmos to the fossils to the biology. Um, and so anyway, that totally transformed me. And I went from evolution to creation because a, a friend dared me and challenged me to read that book. And the whole time I'm reading it, I, I, I now work for the institution, for the institute that produced that book. You know, and I, 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 I can't, can't help but think that God was like up there in heaven watching me read going, I've got some ideas about what's going to yeah. happen. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. And tell us about that because I mean, your the background there is phenomenal. What is that? A stegosaurus there in the background? 
Uh, yes, it's a model. It, it's a certified replica. Uh, we have we have Steg here, and anyway, we're at the um, in the lobby um, of the uh, Discovery Center here at the Institute for Creation Research in Dallas, where people come every day, hundreds of people, hopefully soon to be thousands. Uh, we're we're kind of young and just getting booted up here. Um, uh, but yeah, so we have uh, we have exhibits on display, and this is just the lobby. We have a planetarium I'm staring at here, um, with with unique planetarium shows um, seen nowhere else. And uh, so yeah, we have an array of dinosaurs. Some are real, some are um, some are replicas behind me. And so we uh, yeah, we could talk about what's behind me. It, I may be turning my head a lot if we do, so we may have to stick with your questions. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> so I just wanted to make sure that our listeners get a chance to to um, you know, know where they can actually go and see all this cool stuff that you guys have put together. ICR has grown incredibly. Um, I know it's, it's funny because I actually teach at the school where ICR was developed out of down here in Southern California and uh, in Santee, California with the, the Creation Museum. And then you guys ended up in Texas and that's really cool um, just to see how God has moved and uh, grown the ministry. But I, I really wanna get into dinosaurs because um, I want to make sure I capitalize on this opportunity to chat with you. You know, you did your dis dissertation on ancient and fossil bone collagen remnants. Um, why did you choose specifically that um, emphasis, you know, for your dissertation? Uh, what made you decide, you know what, of all the different things that I can study in regards to this, this is what I'm going to focus on. Sure. Uh, well, it started with... Um... A science, excuse me, a science paper I read in, um, um, well, it came out in 2005. I probably got around to reading it in 2007. And um, so I was kind of curious about it. And the more I wrote articles for the Institute, the more similar papers came out to that original, well, to the first one I saw, which described blood vessels that were liberated from inside Tyrannosaurus rex femur leg bone. That's and, Mary Schweitzer in 2005. That's right. That's, uh, that's the lead author. And so, and so then, so then I was sort of tracking the, um, um, the controversy that that started. And so on the one hand, you've got, you've got scientists who understand that tissue don't, doesn't last long and they study protein decay rates. They're basically biochemists by background and they're scoffing at those, at those results. And they're saying that can't possibly be from, T-Rex or any other dinosaur, because proteins don't last a million years, let alone 70 million. And then on the other hand, you've got paleontologists who may not have a biochemistry background, but um, as much, but they, um, but they're just digging around looking at fossils and they keep liberating uh, blood vessels. And uh, so blood vessels are like, they're made of the same basic material that skin is made of, which is mostly collagen protein. And it's a, it's a, it's insoluble. So it's one of the longest lasting proteins. Like after an animal dies, the collagen lasts longer than most of the other proteins. Uh, and how long would that be? I mean, it, it depends on uh, temperature. So if, if you, um, in humidity probably plays a, a bit of a role too. Yeah. So, but the temperature is the biggest factor. I mean, assuming bacteria don't get to it, because if bacteria access a, a, um, a carcass, then they'll, they'll devour the collagen and it'll be all gone too. And, and other critters. So that's what happens in today's world when an animal dies in the water, at sea, lakes, or on land, 
it gets scavenged and and then it rots um, and that and rotting you can you can think of rotting in terms of biodegradation which is microbes eating it um, eating the nutrients and recycling those nutrients which praise the lord he made those to do that so that we don't have to walk through yeah through <laughs> carcasses yeah. piled to 10 feet high everywhere we go you know yeah uh, so, so you know that a question popped into my mind just now you know um, one of the things that is uh, absolutely amazing is um, the mammoth, you know, I believe they found full mammoths, uh, you know, skin, everything all on it. Um, and, and I'm assuming, of course, that's because of the cold weather, the, the, they're frozen. So what is the maximum, um, you know, time frame that you would expect collagen to last uh, in, under ideal circumstances? Um, how long would that last scientifically? Right. Yeah. So, and so that's with, um, we're, we're not scavenging the, the mammoths. Wolves do, by the way, they're still eating them when they get desperate. Um, and, and when they, when the permafrost melts back enough to where an animal could scavenge and get to it anyway, assuming it's not going to get scavenged and assuming back it's too cold for bacteria or too, too dry for bacteria to, to do their thing, then Chemistry is still there. Chemistry is relentless. And unless you have, it's so the chemistry of this goes in one direction after you die. And that's the direction from complicated to simple. So you have a very highly organized molecule, biomolecule. It's a protein in the form of collagen. It's three strands and each of the three strands winds around the other. So it's tough and ropey. Um, at the molecular level, but chemistry still happens to it and it happens relentlessly. And there's no, mm. there's no geologic stratum that doesn't, um, you know, that keeps out oxygen, oxygen gets everywhere. Water gets everywhere. And so there's no, uh, so, so best case scenario, um, is would be frozen. Yeah. Like you said, permafrost and, um, uh, so, so the maximum shelf life would be, uh, you, you could probably extend it from, um, to, uh, let's say, let's say close to, to a million years. I'd have to do the, the math on that, but so, so in theory, based on today's decay rates that we measure in the lab, you can mm. get, you can get these, um, uh, you can get pro protein, this protein collagen, it's, you know, it's in our bones, it's in our cartilage, it's in skin, you can get it to last hundreds of thousands of years in theory. And that's if mm. radiation doesn't get to it. That's if bacteria doesn't get to it. Really, if anything gets to it, it's going to, you know, that's under ideal conditions. And that's in the literature. That's in the secular mainstream, uh, you know, research-based lab bench, repeatable experiment-based science. So, uh, so then the question is, is, you know, if they're finding uh, a T-Rex that's supposedly 65 million years old, um, and it still has red blood cells in it, literally uh, blood vessels. Uh, how does any scientist justify this? I saw, you know, the argument that, oh, if there's a certain amount of iron, uh, the iron somehow can preserve it and extend the lifespan of these, these soft tissues into the, you know, 65 million years, or they, there was a hadrosaur, I, I believe that was like supposedly 80, 80 million years old. Is that legitimate? Is that real science? Well. I would, it's, um, it's, it's complicated. And so I've, I had to study that to answer that very question. So let mm -hmm. me tease it apart real, really quick for you. 
Um, the iron preservation hypothesis has an experiment that, that supports it, okay? But here's what they did for the experiment. They, uh, they took uh, iron and um, used lab equipment to concentrate that iron. And then they bathed blood vessels in iron concentrate, mm. like iron, iron soup. Um, and then they observed it for, for several years at room temperature. And, um, and the control was blood vessels liberated from ostrich bone that were not treated with the iron soup. And those rotted within a few weeks. So what's the difference? I think the difference is what we already knew about iron and that it's a bacteriostatin. So bacteria don't grow when there's too much iron. But unless we have a Jurassic blender or a Jurassic scientist who could make iron soup, then we're, we're presenting a, um, so, so it, it over, the conclusion from those data overreached the data. Because mm. their conclusion was, because iron keeps bacteria from eating this in a couple of years in a lab bench, therefore proteins can last for millions of years. Well, A, how do you get the iron to, to lay down on top of a protein that's buried inside of a bone in high concentration of iron? And B, we're not talking about bacteria anyways. We're talking about <laughs> chemistry. Yeah. And, but the bottom line is to justify that um, conclusion, you'd have to do a longevity decay rate study. Hmm. Nobody has done that. We're starting to do it. We have the, we have the lab. We just need the personnel uh, to, to do that. Well, that's we really cool. That very, we want to test that very hypothesis in our lab here. That's, that's fantastic. I love it. So, um, you know, your degree, your PhD uh, is in paleobiochemistry. Um, why the, why the uh, mixture of all these different, you know, uh, why did you decide, okay, this is going to be my focus. It, that sounds very, um, I mean, you're, you're pulling from, it looks like three different disciplines. Right. Yeah, that's well said. And I think that's why I picked the word. I was able to choose it in, in your PhD program. Sometimes you can choose, especially in, in the UK, which is where I got mine. You can name it what you think it should be called. And then as long as your review committee approves of it, then you're good to go. But now I regret calling it <laughs> paleobiochemistry <laughs> because everywhere I go, people now introduce me as paleobiochemists and no one knows what it means. <laughs> that's so funny. I should have just called myself fossil, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm a fossilist, you know, or something there you like go. that. You know? <laughs> That's funny. But basically I wanted a, a word that described what I did and, um, you know, what I, what I had studied. And so at the end of my program, I picked that word because I did, basically it's dinosaur proteins. So that's what I, I'm a dinosaur proteins guy, but I haven't done protein sequencing. And so I had to come up with a word that doesn't mean protein sequencing. Um, so yeah, so paleo means ancient, which refers to fossils. Bio means life, chemistry means the chemicals of life. So I'm looking at the ancient chemicals of life. And my thesis covers not just um, Mesozoic or dinosaur material, but also material from Ice Age, Roman occupation of Britain, um, uh, middle, um, uh, medieval, you know, and so I have different bones of different ages and we've done the similar uh, techniques on all these different bones to see in different settings, you know, to kind of explore how much collagen is in them. Where do you find bones with collagen? Where do you find bones without so much collagen? And so we've come up with a lot of answers. 
Wow, that's so interesting. There's still so many questions. You know, you could get an infinite number of PhDs in this one little discipline and you just keep going. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, you know, succinctly, uh, for those of you listening, just tuning in, my guest today is Brian Thomas with ICR, Dr. Brian Thomas. And, um, you know, he's written over probably well over a thousand articles for ICR, specifically on creation science specifically. So how do we, how do we look at the Bible in a biblical worldview that also, uh, you know, the God of the Bible is the God of science. The God of uh, creation is the God of science. So, um, so, you know, for our, our listeners, uh, I mean, that's the succinct, um, description of how dinosaurs fit in the Bible is that, uh, if we take the Bible at its word, the dinosaurs were, were created, uh, during the six days of creation, just like everything else was created. It was all created all at the same time. Um, and then the, the dinosaurs actually, Noah did take them on the ark. The flood really did happen. There was a worldwide flood. It explains the geology all throughout, um, the world. And then ultimately these dinosaurs went extinct and, and, um, you know, a lot of people, the, the question is, um, you know, what evidence do we have that dinosaurs didn't go extinct millions of years ago, but went extinct recently? How do we know that that's really the case? And, you know, there are, there are, as you know, there are so many different angles to come at that from. And one of the ones I'm very interested in my, my wife was, um, during it's very interesting during, um, she was uh, working towards her degree in interior design and she had to take a class on the history of art. And she brought this book home and goes, Kevin, you will not believe the amount of artwork that has depictions of dinosaurs and dragons in it. It's unreal. And I looked through it and I've, you know, I've seen a few of them, but I, I could not believe the amount of, um, of artwork that depicts, you know, dragons or dragon-like creatures. And I wanted to talk to you about that um, because I know you have several books on this um, there at ICR that deal directly with depictions of dragons. What is some of the most um, significant and uh, maybe compelling uh, artwork that you've seen that actually says, hey, you know what? These people didn't just make this up. They actually saw it and they put it in their artwork. Well, I wish I could just pick up this camera and carry you with me to the to the dragon wall that we have on display here at the ICR Discovery Center. And yeah. for some people, it's their favorite um, exhibit in the whole place uh, because it's it's so real. Um, and like you said, your, your your wife was looking at the the you know the artwork that our ancestors really left behind in this real yeah. world. And so, and it's a great question that you ask. What's the most compelling? Because what what there's a trap that we can fall into and we have to warn warn ourselves to not fall into this trap and it is to to see dinosaurs or whatever we want to see where they're really not actually there hmm. so there's a there's a rigorous um eight-step uh verification process that um uh, a friend of mine uh vance nelson has used to uh to pull together the very best examples from around the world of not just dinosaurs, but um, all kinds of extinct creatures. And so one of the, one of the tests for verification is um, you know, to, to have a, a tight match between the anatomy described in the artwork with the anatomy known from the fossils. Mm. Uh, another test that he uses, and I really appreciate him for doing this, is um, to hire a, um, an evolutionary paleo artist. Are you with me? Yeah, so, interesting. So, 
a, a paleo artist draws what he or she thinks an extinct animal looked like based on their knowledge of anatomy and uh, based on the, um, the fossil, the, the bones arranged in, in the fossil. And so, um, yeah. So and he's hiring an evolutionist specifically yeah. because he, had, he doesn't have a bias towards creation. Exactly. And so what he wants is to have that, um, um, that, t- that testimony, you know, from the other side. Yeah. In a way. So, so then in his book, every single, you know, artifact that he chooses, he, he personally hired, uh, you know, an artist paid thousands of dollars to get this done. Wow. And, uh, and so you, you could see the paleo artist's version or rendering right next to the ancient artwork. And it's a, it's really stunning because in, in so many cases, it's exactly the same, you know, wow. the same anatomy, same what Same. book is that? Do you have the name of that book handy by any chance? Uh, it's called Dire Dragons. It's the best book on the subject. We sell it right here at the bookstores right behind me. Uh, but, okay. Uh, <laughs> is that yeah. on the website too, icr.org? Oh, sure. So yeah. uh, store.icr.org and then look up Dire Dragons. But that's the thing we have to be careful because 95% of the dragon art that's out there does not match uh, uh, doesn't match uh, the anatomy known from any particular fossil. It may have a general dinosaurian or reptilian um, aspect to it, but we can't really make very many firm conclusions based on those. They're enough to intrigue us, but they're not enough for us to be persuaded of one worldview over against the other. Mm. So, but it's when you get to these uh, very rare ones that exactly match the anatomy. Uh, one that we have on display here. Uh, is a um, it's an altarpiece, so it's a, it's a, it's artwork done in the in, the, um, in medieval times. Uh, I think it's fifteen hundred something like that. It's on display. It's in it's well not a, it's, it's in a private building, but it's in uh, Barcelona, and uh, it's it's a it's yet another depiction of Saint George and the dragon, and, and the dragon seems to be a different dragon all around Europe, uh, and so that's an intriguing question as to why. Mm. Vance, has, Vance has a good answer for that too. Um, I mean, it is a spitting image, so to speak, of a creature called Nothosaurus. They're on display in Barcelona or on display to the people who can get in the building. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's been, and you know, you can, and you can get images of the, of this. Um, just look it up, you know, uh, Palatats, so- General. Anyway, so it's, it's the, it's got the teeth that go outside the mouth. That's very characteristic of Nothosaurus. It was not a dinosaur. It, it's an extinct uh, semi-aquatic reptile. Uh, um, and it's the body size is proportional to a horse on the image. And it's exactly the same proportion that we know from the fossils of this thing. And um, the, we find those fossils in Triassic rocks, which are below the rocks that have most of the dinosaurs in them. So we would interpret that as midway through the flood. So because we think of the, 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 the stack of rocks around the globe, uh, all the whole, the whole rock stack as being having been deposited in just the one year of Noah's flood. So that the, that the fossils in the bottom are different than the fossils on top, not because they uh, were yet to evolve through some sort of uh, progressive progression over millions of years, but instead uh, because these were the creatures to be inundated first during the year because they were already the lowest and then as the they, water were in the, they were in the ocean 
in the ocean. And as the yeah, waters went yeah. higher and higher, they buried um, um, more and more. Uh, um, would the argument would the would the argument be that elevation. the animals in the ocean could not escape the floodwaters quick enough, right? Where the, whereas the animals on land are running up, getting trying to get to higher ground, and so you're going to have that process of burying the animals, like you said. And so, whereas an evolutionist says, oh yeah, yeah, these creatures on the bottom of the ocean, they evolved first and then it got progressive until we get to humans at the top. But we're saying, no, 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 they got buried first. And then the humans essentially got buried last. Is that what we're arguing? Yeah. Buried last because, uh, yeah, because they were in the highest elevations of the pre-flood world, roughly speaking. So yeah. where, where do we look for, for human fossils? Well, they'd be They'd be alongside creatures that live on dry land today, like camels and horses and, you know, cats and things like that. So, so we do have fossils of camels and horses and cats, uh, and none of those are with dinosaurs. None of those are down below the dinosaurs with Nothosaurus and the Triassic uh, layers. None of those are in the Cambrian, which is just the bottom of the sea creatures. You know, shallow, shallow, some of it's shallow marine, a lot of it's shallow marine, you know, in the so so this brings up another subject, which is if it's true that the humans and some of the land dinosaurs are both, you know, there, is there mixing of the fossils between animals? Because, you know, in the books, if you look in the books, you look at the geology, right? Um, they've got this clear lineup of, you know, all the different time frames and all the way things evolved. Um, is that accurate? You know, when you see a high school textbook uh, discussing, you know, uh, evolutionary history, um, or do we have uh, evidence that people and dinosaurs were buried together? Do we have human fossils with uh, some dinosaur fossils or human footprints with some dinosaur footprints? Is there evidence of uh, that they did live alongside each other in that regard? Well, again, I don't think I don't think there's any defensible evidence out there of human remains that are you know that are in those layers. Um, I know that the Paluxy River here in North Texas is famous for uh, back in the 70s and 80s for having, um, and even the 90s, for having human-like footprints in them. And those are definitely dinosaur bear, you know, bearing uh, layers. But uh, it turns out that those prints, um, they turned into dinosaur prints in about 1983-84. So ever since then, uh, the, the main researcher on those, which uh, was our former president, Dr. John Morris. Um, he, uh, he wrote a book suggesting that these could be human remains, but then he had to take them all off the shelves as soon as um, uh, erosion revealed features of those, what we thought were human prints, that they, erosion turned them into what they really were, which is, which is dinosaur prints. Mm. So that's, a, that's, been, a, uh, that's a, been like an evidence for creation that we don't advocate and I wouldn't use anymore. Don't need to though, because we have blood vessels inside dinosaur bones. Yeah. How do you get those? You know, those yeah. really fit really well with the the flood model. Because if if these layers and the dinosaurs and other animals that they contain were all deposited, the whole stack just thousands of years ago, then you've got a shot. You've got a chance at finding maybe some proteins. Not, but we do not only proteins, but the proteins in some cases are still intact in the form of degraded tissues, you know? Yeah. So I, I just was reading an article, which kind of blew me away. It said that a hobbyist recently uh, found a dinosaur with all the skin on the dinosaur. 
Uh, and this was just, I think, only a few weeks ago. Um, I, I feel like it was in Canada. Um, and there was literally, it was almost like finding a dead dinosaur with all the skin on it. And I, I, I'm just thinking to myself, whoa, this is crazy. And I was reading another article. They said that a lot of people are actually going now, a lot of, I don't know if it's paleontologists or other scientists are going back to museums and cutting open the bones that are in the museums and actually finding soft tissue in them because this is happening so frequently now. They're actually finding soft tissue in museum dinosaur bones. Have you heard about this? Yes. <laughs> it's my field. So I, yeah, I know. That's I what I stay on top of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the one you're talking about from a couple of weeks ago, um, you're right. It was in Canada and it was um, hadrosaurus skin, but, but it was skin impressions, or it might've been like mineralized skin, not necessarily the original skin material on that one. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. So you got to be careful because it's, it's easy to, and they don't, they don't tell you up front, even in the technical literature, scientists talking to other scientists, they'll, they'll say preserved blood vessel or preserved retina or this, that, and the other. And it's like, well, in what way is it preserved? And sometimes they don't even tell you. Uh, yeah. But other times they'll tell you preserved in the form of mineral, you know, minerals that have taken the place of the shape. Uh, but that's, and that's cool, but that's not what I'm most interested in, which is preserved, like you said, in the form of just a natural mummy. It's the original skin. So there's a Psittacosaurus from China uh, that, that was published about a decade ago now. And yeah, they used uh, a special uh, microscope technique to image the skin and, and it, it revealed collagen protein fibers in the skin. Wow. Um, so of, of that dinosaur. So it's, it's in there. And we was have... that, was that in a frozen environment? Is that why no. it was preserved? No, it wasn't even, it wasn't even in a no. frozen environment. So even, even not under ideal conditions, we're seeing this because you said, you know, you said um, when we were referencing the artwork about um, St. George slaying the dragon, uh, you said somewhere around the 1500s. Is, is this, is the conclusion that you're inferring here that dinosaurs went extinct as recently as, you know, 500 years ago? Is that, is that what we're thinking? Um, I think, I think the, uh, I think dinosaurs, it, it looks because of the artwork that we see, um, for example, um, there's a, there's a little, uh, um, two sauropods tangled up, um, and it's a, it's a carving from 1406. It's on, it's on display. Um, well, it's under a, it's under a rug, but it's, it's there in the North of England. And, um, one of the two sauropod lookalikes, I mean, they are exactly sauropod shape. One of the two has uh, four little tail spikes on the end of its tail. So we looked in the literature um, to, to look at the fossils and, you know, asked ourselves the question, is there a sauropod that has any tail spikes at all? And if so, how many? And the answer is, yeah, Shunosaurus was discovered in like the early 1990s. Um, and it had four tail spikes. So, so the anatomy on that matches what we see in the fossils. So that tells me that it's possible that the artist back in 1406 who carved this in brass um, had either first or secondhand knowledge of the anatomy of various sauropod dinosaurs. So how could they have, how could they have learned that? One theory is he had a time machine and he jumped forward in time <laughs> to the 1990s, you know, and then yeah. 
Doug looked at the dinosaur bones and then went back. The okay. Accessed the, the technical literature and then went back. But that's uh, that's pretty um, pretty outrageous to, to, to yeah. hypothesize. Bill and Ted's Bill and Ted's excellent adventure there. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, in a, in a phone booth. That. I don't yeah. favor that explanation, but uh, <laughs> but so 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 somehow it looks like they had that. Um, of course, the uh, well anyway. So that puts the extinction of dinosaurs from England at, you know, 1400s, 1500s, because the artwork after those centuries no longer has uh, depictions of, of, of uh, uh, dinosaur lookalikes. Same with, similar with Europe. And so we're, we looked at the historical temperature records, and it, there may be a link between something called the Little Ice Age back when the, the, the Thames River, that's how they say it over there, um, which flows in front of, um, through London, that the, that whole river froze. I mean, it was so cold uh, that during the Little Ice Age, uh, it's just natural processes. I, I guess the sun got real shy for you know, a handful of years. And that we think that that may be related to why some of those creatures went extinct during that time. So climate change and, um, loss of habitat from climate change, loss of habitat from people moving in, those today are the two number one reasons why creatures go extinct today. Mm. So I'm thinking those are the same reasons why dinosaurs went extinct after the flood in mm. the days of yore. So, um, you know, I, I've looked into this. It was really funny. This is like so random, but I was um, just looking at some different um, social media feeds and I stumbled on this. I, I don't know if, uh, you know, Google overheard me talking about dinosaurs or something and started putting it in my feed or whatever, but Joe Rogan popped up interviewing a guy who literally went to look for dinosaurs in the Congo and almost died in the process. He said it was crazy what he was doing, but he literally went by himself. It's a, it, it is the strangest story you ever heard, um, about a guy that went down there looking for it. He ends up almost dying. He gets found by some, um, uh, I think it's pygmies down there who know the forest. Well, they basically rescue him and he gets out of there. He never sees anything. He never finds anything. He says it's insane. There's no way you could ever find anything in that, in this forest. Um, but I'm just curious because I, I did also watch a episode where with the history channel, where William Gibbons actually goes down to the Congo also and interviews a bunch of pygmies on, Hey, is this creature here? Is this alive? Do you think it's possible that there is still a creature like that in the Congo? Do you think, uh, are you, uh, is ICR going to plan a trip down to, to, you know, down to the Congo and <laughs> try to find one of these creatures? Uh, well, we don't have any plans right now for that. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's certainly possible. Um, yeah. So yeah, the Likawala swamp has had rumors coming from missionaries for, uh, you know, early part of the 19th century, central Congo, uh, you know, about these, possible dinosaur like creatures. And, uh, but, but like you said, they're so hard to access. They're buried in these uh, deep in these swamps. Um, and um, yeah, swamps are crazy. Uh, e e you know, even the swamps in Florida, I wouldn't want to spend one night. I don't know if I, <laughs> I don't know if I'd survive one night, you know, with yeah, all know. And stuff. So it, so yeah, that's, that's the challenge that we'd face. And what would be the prize? Let's say you find a, um, the natives call it Mokele Mbembe. So that's their name for like a sauropod dinosaur that they think is in a swamp. Um, or they thought back in the 70s, back when Roy Mackle, he's a cryptozoologist from University of Chicago, 
And uh, he went in the eight, early 80s and went, you know, with the help of natives and um, uh, found evidence that seemed compelling, but never any hard evidence. Mm. Um, so that's kind of where that's kind of where it's ended uh, as far as as far as I'm concerned. So I think I think if there was a dinosaur, it may have gone extinct in the 90s, you know, yeah, very, very recently in that location. So that's just my speculation. In other words, the trail would have to be hot, not cold, to motivate us to mount an expedition. That'd and be very if, costly. Even if we did, we'd have to get, we'd have to hire people because you need expertise in like jungle survival and, uh, you know, you know, translators and you, you know who knows what all infrastructure you'd need. I'm more of a, I'm more, I'm more of a guy who investigates um, things that I can, that I can grab a hold of. Yeah. Know? <laughs> that don't bite back anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like this is a Mosasaur tooth from North, North Africa talking. Well, you're not risking your life, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, yeah, that's, that's amazing. Do you feel like um, there is a progression in the scientific community where there's actually a, a changing of the tide as far as, you know, are, are there becoming more uh, people that are going, you know what, we need to take a second look at this because things are changing. Or um, are they just finding ways to justify, uh, you know, some sort of a, a, a rescuing device to be able to prop up a, a failing, uh, you know, ideology? I think when it comes to um, belief in deep time, which is the, you know, the idea that the earth is four and a half billion years old, uh, et cetera, that's just not under um, scrutiny. It's not ever questioned. It's not up for up for debate. Um, and yet, if you're going to go with what the Bible says straightforwardly about the past, you you have to at least start to start to question why. If if that's really the history of the world, why doesn't the Bible have any of that in it? Instead, mm-hmm. the Bible has recent creation. If you read it just like a child would read it, and I think that's what we're supposed to do with the Scripture. Um, just read it like straightforwardly. Otherwise, it's going to be pretty meaningless because you'd have to get like advanced degrees to understand what the Bible says. But then that would that would defeat the purpose of having a Bible, you know, which is to tell us where we came from, the truth about it, to tell us where we're headed, to tell us what the big problem is. And it's my sin. And to tell us what God's big solution to our big problem is. And so these are the big themes. And if you can't understand what the Bible's saying, then you're never going to, you know, there's eternal consequences to that. You're, you're going to be lost forever. So anyway, uh, all that to say, um, that's the, the, that's the road I had to travel as a Christian myself. Cause I knew that the earth was four and a half billion years old. I knew, you know, that science proved uh, millions of years. I knew that, you know, dinosaurs lived in an age of reptiles that ended 65 million years ago. And the reason I knew it is because it had been drilled into me by my culture uh, since age six. I remember Mm. I went to my first uh, uh, dinosaur museum in Wyoming with my uncle and it was like, boom, these dinosaurs on display, like just like we have here behind me, you know, these are, these are creatures that are long dead. They've been dead for tens of millions of years. And it's like, that's, and that was fact from then on. Well, once I started reading the Bible, I was like, okay, did God really get it this wrong? like way <laughs> orders yeah. of magnitude wrong. Right. And, and so then I started to look at the evidence and go, okay, why is it that they're saying that it's this old? Mm. And, and every, every argument that I investigated, it, it turned out to be resting more on belief than on data 
Like it was data that were cherry picked to fit a belief. That's what I found. But, you know, I, I tried to explain that to an old earther last week and he just scoffed and balked and said, well, I, I completely disagree. So I'm like, well, you can disagree, but I mean, this is, that's the conclusion I reached after I investigated it and challenged it. So we have to, you know, we have to be bold and brave and challenge these things. And it was the yeah. hardest thing for me to give up because I knew if I'm going to go with the young earth creation, crazy people, <laughs> you know, then, then I'm not going to have friends. I'm not going to be cool. And to, and for some folks being thought of highly is more important than the truth. Mm. And, and, and it was to me for, for a long time until one day I just, there was so much science that kept supporting recent creation, like the blood vessels and dinosaur bones, like the earth's decaying magnetic field, all, all these things I began to study. I was like, you know what? I'm going to be a fool if I don't go with where all this evidence yeah. is leading. Yeah. That's how I feel too. I just, it's funny because I, I've gotten to the point where I enjoy, you know, going into a crowd and going, Hey, I'm a young earth creationist. And everybody's like, uh, like what the heck? <laughs> I actually went to an evolutionary seminar and they did a round table discussion and there was about 10, uh, evolutionists all around the table. And it, it, I don't think they expected any creationists to show up, but I just went just for the fun of it. And uh, I sat at the table and I, I started off by saying, Hey, I just want to let everybody know right off the bat. I believe in a recent creation. I'm a creationist. And they about fell out of their chairs. <laughs> One lady turned to me and goes, you are really brave coming here. And I was like, thinking, like, okay, what, what are you guys going to do to me? <laughs> What's going to happen? Right? But it ended up, we had some fantastic discussions and right. people um, really, you know, wanted to hear. They, they were genuinely curious, like, why do you think what you think? And I think yeah. once we had that conversation and I showed that this was actually logical, that I wasn't like, you know, just pulling something out of my ear, that they were like, oh, wow. And a couple of people, they just really wanted to keep talking to me. It was very interesting. And so, you know, that's my encouragement, I guess, to people is that, hey, don't don't give up. God, you know, God got Brian Thomas. And um, ultimately, you know, he can get who he needs to get. So, um, you know, but, thanks a lot for that. That's really encouraging. Well, thank you. That's encouraging, too, because the, the reason God, quote unquote, got me is because someone loved me enough to keep challenging me and to keep asking me questions that I couldn't answer because he knew, but I didn't know that my faith, that my faith in evolution, that the evolutionary position wasn't a very defensible one. Mm. And so I'd come up with, well, it's true because of this. And he'd, and he'd say, well, if that's the case, then why do evolutionists themselves disagree with that evidence for evolution or whatever it may have been? And I'm like, I never heard about any disagreement. And then he would show me that, show me quotes, you know, from evolutionists who are like, no, that's not a transitional form or we don't think <laughs> with, with, you know, or anyway, so, uh, so, so that got me thinking. Right. And uh, so I appreciate, I appreciate you make having those conversations. I had one of those just recently, we did a uh, on-campus ministry um, in Missouri last week, I think was it last week already. Uh, yeah. And it's, so we got some conversations with some college students just on the, on the campus. And uh, um yeah, several of them, several of the conversations turned like you, like you described, like, wait, you don't believe this? Everyone believes evolution. Why don't you? And so yeah. I was able to tell them why, you know, and then like, so you believe Adam and Eve? I'm like, let's talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> I actually do. Yeah. And here's, the reason, here's one of the reasons why I believe that. And they're like, yeah. 
then they just ask me question after question because they've never heard someone who says they believe in Genesis and actually has reasons for believing in Genesis as real yeah. history. Yeah. And yeah. it's a, it's just a fun position to be in. And it's, it's refreshing to hear, you know, to have conversations with folks instead of getting tomatoes thrown at you. Yeah. And what's cool, what I find is really interesting is that um, once you become relatively knowledgeable about the science and the evidence for, for example, dinosaurs, um, it's actually a fantastic opportunity to segue into the gospel and to the, you know, good news of Jesus, because people are interested. They're like, hey, this is interesting. I've never heard this before. And uh, I literally had a guy say that to me. He goes, where did you hear this? He goes, I have literally never heard this before. And that's a really good point. He was like stunned. He was just stunned. Um, I was discussing the the uh, the salt content of the ocean, and he was just like, "What? That makes total sense." <laughs> and so it's just it's just wonderful stuff. So I encourage you, anybody who's listening out there, um, Brian Thomas has written numerous articles for ICR. The resource is incredible as a tool. If there's a topic you're interested in it, it, that relates to scientific science and creation or the evolutionary uh, issues. Um, it's on ICR's website and, and you can find it. It's amazing the amount of information on there. How many articles do you guys have on your, on your website now? I mean, it's tens of thousands, probably f- maybe 50,000. Wow. That's just, maybe that is incredible. <laughs> well, Somebody praise God for it. what you guys are doing. That's just amazing. Well, thank you for that kind word. And, uh, uh, you know, if, if it wasn't the reason we're able to do that and just post all this content for free on our website is because people love the, 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 the very idea that we can actually explore. We can actually ask questions that our secular colleagues aren't even asking. Hmm. And so the creation model frees us to ask different questions entirely. Like, can that really, does it really have to be that old or, um, or what have you? And so, when we discover um, evidence that supports Genesis creation, people love it. You know, yeah. people who people who already know that the Bible is true, they love to see that there's science that supports that. Mm-hmm. And so that's what lit my faith on fire. Honestly, mm-hmm. when I was in high school, and for the first time I heard the evidence for creation, I just my mind just blew up. I was like, "Wait a second, it's all real." Yeah, I was like, people need to hear this. This is unreal. Right. Like, right. I started telling my friends at school. I was just like, I couldn't believe it. I was just astonished. And right. so, um, and I see it in my students too. My students, when they start to hear this stuff, they just their eyes light up, and they're just like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And they feel much more comfortable being able to actually talk to people about their oh, faith. Yes. Yeah. So that's wonderful. Um, uh, again, my guest today has been Brian Thomas. ICR.org, tons of resources out there. You can visit them at the at the uh, Discovery Center in Texas, Dallas, Texas. Uh, if you're in that area, wonderful opportunity. You don't want to miss it. Um, just the amount of stuff. It'll just really encourage you and inspire you and ultimately just uh, draw you into a deeper relationship with the Word of God and with Jesus Christ. So, uh, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time um, to be here. I know you had to stay late there at the Discovery Center. So thanks a lot. Hey, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on board. Absolutely. And uh, we'll be back again next week, you guys. Uh, Thanks for being here. We've had some fantastic guests recently. I had Mark Newman last week. Um, Just just the amount of information he knew about the the Roe versus Wade issue that's happening um, was just really encouraging and a blessing. And uh, just his insight was awesome. All kinds of uh, former radio shows that you can uh, check out. 
on our website and look at that. Also, educateforlife.org is uh, there for you, for your family. It's a homeschool curriculum that you can use there um, or for Bible studies. So please check that out when you get a chance. Thanks again for being here this evening. I hope you have a fantastic week and uh, we will see you next time. God bless you.